Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. All right, so we are Jesus was crucified. He um, was taken off the cross. Uh, Brandon gave a great message a couple weeks ago about uh, the beautiful picture of him saying thirst. And they gave him the sour wine in contrast with Jesus making the perfect pure wine at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And he uh, received uh, the word, received the sour wine into him, and then he gave up the spirit at his finished, and he died. Terrific, beautiful picture, as Brandon beautifully explained, about uh, the receiving of, as the sour wine came in, just a shadow of a picture of receiving the sin of the world. As Paul writes in uh, the letter to the Corinthians, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So as he drank the sour wine into him, he said, again, can visually see the sin of the world coming into him and he becoming the sin of the world for us. Now we know, we should know, that the death of Jesus was at the end of Jesus. We know that three days later there was a what? Resurrection. But have you ever paused and, and we're glad and we celebrate it. We have the same Easter every year. Uh, where we get together, we put on the, the, the nice outfits and hats and pick up eggs and have a bunny. I don't know if eggs and bunnies come together, but and we have the same Easter where we celebrate specifically, like culturally, not just as a Christian, but culturally there's a celebration of the resurrection. Um, but have you ever paused to really think why a resurrection? Why a resurrection? Did there have to be a resurrection? I think we say again for granted. We just—it's the story. It's how it went—the death, the burial, the resurrection. But as if you know anything about me, you know I like to ask why. I want to know why. I don't want to just see. I got in trouble for the first 31, 50 years of my life by just listening to a guy—not just a guy, but a system—and just uh, regurgitating what I was told by the system. I want to know why. I want to know why. There was a death. Why there was a birth? But here this morning, why a resurrection? In order to answer that question, unfortunately, we've got to ask, I think, another question, a more perhaps basic question, and I don't want to say more important question, but they come together and we'll see. So why a resurrection? Well, to answer that question, let's ask another question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Have you ever heard the gospel being explained as, or just summarized as, Jesus dying for my sins. You ever heard that? Sure. Yeah. Jesus dying for my sins. 
And is that true? Did Jesus die for our sins? Absolutely. But what was the question? What is the gospel? And if the answer is Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, is that the answer to the question, what is the gospel? And see, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. You see, so many of us, and I don't mean just us in this room, like us, Christianity, whatever, would be like, well, yeah, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus died for my sins. And I just want to take a second and say, whoa, wait a minute. Because I don't think that alone is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Because he, let's just suppose, accurately, but let's just suppose that Jesus did die for the sins of the world, as the scripture clearly reveals. And that all sin for all time, for all people, has been removed. And God no longer is in the business of this new covenant of counting sins. Let's just suppose that be true. What does, where does that leave humanity? Forgiven, but still what? Dead. Forgiveness is not the totality of the gospel. Forgiveness, think of it this way, is the means. It what has to happen in order for the rest of the gospel to happen, which is the impartation of life, his life, into us. And so if we ask the question of what is the gospel, and the answer is, is the death of uh, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we're not wrong, we're just not all the way right. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins to remove sin, to pay for it, to take it away. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world so that by faith we then can receive life himself into us. So the death of Jesus for our sins is great, it's fantastic. Let us celebrating, but it alone, I'm getting at, is not the gospel. Because if there were no resurrection, there would be no bride of Christ. There would be no church. There would be no Christianity. There would be a lot of forgiven people who are still dead as a result of sin. Forgiven but still dead. And that's the condition of the entire world until faith, it happens. So the gospel is not just all of our sins having been forgiven. They have been forgiven. The death of Jesus and our total forgiveness of sins is a means to an end. And, and I was trying to think of an illustration of what that can look like. So let's say that you're like an athletic type, like a runner or an exerciser or whatever. Those people are. You you have a race coming up, like a 5K, a 10K. There was the Virginia Miler thing or whatever here recently. So you do you just show up, you know, straight from the couch, you know, to the starting line? You could, probably not going to make it very far. What do you do? You what? You train. You work out. You get in shape. You do something so that you can run the race, so that you can win the race or beat your best record. Think about at work. If you have a big presentation, all eyes are on you. Are you just going to roll out of bed that morning and, you know, brush your teeth, comb your hair, put on a new pair of 
socks and walk in and say, hey, uh, and just open your mouth and out comes something for your big presentation where your future rides on it? No, you're going to prepare. You're going to study. You're going to figure out data, whatever your job happens to be, so that you can actually know what you're talking about. There's a means preparation for the end result, which is the presentation. And that's the best that I can come up with this week in this idea of the death of Jesus is a part of the gospel, but it in and of itself is not the gospel. It is the preparation. It is what had to happen in order for, I will say, as Paul says it, something greater to happen. And the greater is the restoration of life into humanity. And so, why a resurrection? In order to ask that question, we have to ask the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is not just the death of Jesus. It is the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the ability now for life, eternal life, to come into us now that sin has been forgiven. Since there was a training that happened for the race, you can now run the race and be successful. Since you prepared for your presentation, you can now give a successful preparation. Since there was the removal of sin, now eternal life, God himself can come in and live. You see, God in his holiness cannot cohabit with sin. And in fact, this is exactly what God promised would happen back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God had created man. Woman had not even been created yet. He created man and everything. And God, the Lord God took the man and he put him into this garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, to enjoy it, to, 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 to use it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Any tree. But, you know this, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now look at this. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, if you know the story, you know that Adam and Eve ate from the tree. I don't know how long it was after this that happened, but they eventually ate from the tree. But did they die? See, most would look at it and say, no, they didn't die. They lived, Scripture says, hundreds of years later. Then they died. But this, in the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, for in the day that you eat is emphatic. That very moment is the emphatic in the Hebrew. Like not 600 some odd years later when you die physically, you'll die. But the promise was when you sin, when sin enters in through disobedience, you will die. That moment, that very moment. So what is God talking about? I think he's talking about very clearly not his physical being that was created, but he's talking about the life that God had breathed into Adam when he created Adam, the very breath of God, the life of God, the spirit of God that was in Adam in the moment in which Adam chose sin to enter into him through disobedience, the life of God himself could no longer reside in Adam because the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin cannot cohabit at the same time. And so if Adam's going to choose sin to come in, then God's going to say, I cannot remain in there, and so you will die. The life that I breathed into, you will exit. You will die. Not physically, because he lived for many, many years. 
but spiritual death. See, this is the promise that God made, that his life and sin will not cohabit at the same time. This is what's known as the curse. This is what's known as the fall of humanity. And the gospel is the undoing. It's reversing the curse, if you will, of what happened here at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and then chapter 4 when uh, 3 or 4 when Adam actually ended up sinning. Well, what did Adam need after the sin? Did Adam need forgiveness? Sure. Right? He needed forgiveness. He needed his the sin that came into him through his disobedience. I just realized I forgot to start the uh, thing. There we go. The sin that came into him through his disobedience, that needed to be removed. That needed to be taken away, right? But is that all that needed to be take, needed to happen? So let's just say that God chose to take away that sin that had come into Adam. What did Adam still not have? Life. It's great that the sin had been taken away, that had been paid for, etc. But he needed life. And so what did Adam ultimately need in Genesis, after Genesis 3 and 4, when he actually sinned? He didn't just need forgiveness. He needed the impartation of the very presence of God back into him that he had when he was first created in Genesis 1. And so Adam didn't need just forgiveness. He needed life. But he had to have forgiveness so that life could return. This is my best understanding of the gospel itself, full and complete. The forgiveness of sins, absolute, total, 100%, no reduction, complete removal. But even more than that, the gospel is the restoration, the impartation of the life of God back into a human being. That's the good news. It's not good news to Adam that, hey, you're forgiven, but still dead spiritually. The good news would be, hey, Adam, not only are you forgiven, but that life that exited because of the sin, it's coming back in. And that's us. That's where we sit here thousands of years after Adam, The death of Jesus on the cross took away the sin of the world. There is no more accounting of sin whatsoever. But if Jesus be not raised from the dead, then there would be no no impartation of life into us. Look at what uh, 1 John 5.11 says. He says, this is my testimony like he's looking at this like a witness as a witness in a court proceeding this is my testimony this is what i've seen this is i'm going to reduce this whole thing this is towards the end of the book of first john i'm reducing this down this is our journey marker i hear john saying this is the testimony that god has given us eternal life so where is this life from john and this life is in his son and the most, one of the most famous verses that John ever writes is the next one. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have 
life. So our question is, why a resurrection? I mean, couldn't God just kind of figure something out some other way without a resurrection? Because let's face it, if you've ever talked to somebody, especially a skeptic, about Christianity, about the gospel, about Jesus... They won't deny the historicity of Jesus. They can't because there's too many both biblical and non-biblical accounts of his early life. But as soon as they won't even they won't even oppose you on like the teachings of Jesus and even the even the miracles of Jesus. A lot of times they they they, they can't oppose that. They can't stand up against that. They can't uh, object to that because of the overwhelming uh, uh, evidence. But as soon as you start talking about a dead Jesus becoming an alive Jesus, then that's where typically put on the brakes, hold the phone. You mean to tell me that I've got to believe that a dead man became an alive man in order for this life to come into me? To which the answer is yes. That's what you must believe. If you don't believe in the Son, then what? Do you, then you don't have the life. You must have the Son in order to have the life. And so, the, could God have not done it a different way so that this big stumbling block of a dead man becoming an alive man has to be believed in order for salvation to happen? Well, where is this life found? This life that is given to us is in the Son. And so if the Son, Jesus himself, remains dead, then what life is then imparted into us? What life is then given to us if the life is found in the Son? So the question, why a resurrection? There had to be a resurrection because it's the resurrected life of the Son of God that is then imparted, infused into each one of us who believe Him. When Jesus offers us His life, when we receive Him, He gives us His life. And if he be not raised, then what would he give us? Nothing. Then this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we're the most foolish of them all. Because everything rides, hinges on the pinnacle of this thing, not just the death of Jesus, but his resurrection. It is his resurrected life that now comes in and restores to us the promise that was given way back in the garden, but the promise that the day would come when life would be returned to us and not just a temporal life, but an eternal life that will last forever. So why a resurrection? Because without the resurrection, there is no life. There is nothing that God would then be able to give humanity if he be not raised back from the dead. So forgiveness of sins is great. It's awesome. I mean, without it, we have nothing. But the forgiveness of sins is not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is the removal of the sin and then the impartation of the life of God now in us. 
And so what we're going to do is let's run through pretty quickly the actual account that John records. But you really need to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts too, because John doesn't record everything. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record everything. But when you read them all together, you get a more uh, holistic view of what actually happened on this, first, on, the, on this resurrection. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. We know from the other Gospels that there were other women as well. While it was still dark and they saw the stone had been already taken away from the tomb. Now why is she going there? We know from the other Gospels that these women were going with her to take spices to anoint his body. They couldn't do it the day before or two days before because of the Passover celebration. It was a day of preparation and the actual Passover. And so there was some embalming, some, uh, not embalming, but some fragrances put on by Joseph of Arimathea when they put his body in. But the full uh, ritual of preparing his body hadn't happened yet. And in fact, they were on the way uh, expecting to find his dead body there they're carrying their spices because all the shops were closed the day before because it was Passover. So they wake up early the Sunday, the first day of the week. They go buy all the, the spices and they go. And as they're talking, Mark records in Mark 16, they say, who's going to roll the stone away from us, for, for us? Who, who's going to take the stone out of the way? Because it's a big stone and we can't do it on our, by ourselves. And so they were fully expecting to find Jesus still what? dead. That's a big deal. He had promised he was going to be come back. Tear this temple down. In three days, I will raise it back up. I mean, he hasn't been silent on this. He's been very clear about it, or at least clear as he could be without ruining it, ruining it at all. If Satan had known what he was actually going to do, Satan wouldn't have led the crucifixion. But the stone, when they showed up, was already taken away. So obviously this perks some curiosity, but her assumption is her assumption is that Jesus, she's going there to, to uh, put spices on his decaying body so he doesn't smell so bad. That's her expectation, her assumption. She's not going there with a full uh, joy in her heart, uh, waiting to, to turn, come across the crest of the hill and to see the Lord standing there resurrected. That's nowhere in her radar. And so, seeing the stone rolled away, she left and ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and John tells us later in the book that the other disciple whom Jesus loved, the one that laid his head on Jesus' bosom and asked, who is going to betray you? That's the one who actually wrote this letter. It's John himself. And they said to them, the, the, uh, Mary says to them, they have taken away, the, taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She fully thinks he is still what? Dead. I mean, she has no expectation of a resurrection. And so what are her assumptions? I, I'm, she's assuming that somebody has taken him. Who? Grave robbers. That's a big deal. I don't think grave robbers would have wasted their time with some little poor uh, nomadic carpenter's son from Galilee. Uh, what is he going to be buried with? Because they would often bury the, uh, the, the body with um, uh, valuables. Uh, and, and in fact, what they would do, especially in Jerusalem, is they would put the body in this, like, this tomb sort of situation like you have here to where all the flesh rots off and the bones remain. And they take the bones and they put them into a box years later. And then that box gets sort of categorized, you know, and it was, I was in college still and they found a box 
with the name of James, uh, which they think was the brother of Jesus. And they were like, oh, we can get some DNA, you know, all this sort of stuff. But I don't know what came of that, you know, but there's no box with Jesus' bones in it. Um, and so anyways, uh, she's, she's assuming someone has taken. The they that I think she's talking about, they have taken. I think that she's thinking about a, uh, some sort of um, collusion between the Romans and the Jews. Because remember, the Romans uh, didn't want this insurrection to happen. The Jews wanted this uh, Jesus and his followers to end. And so the religious Jews knew that there was a promise. They knew of Jesus' promise to return to life. So perhaps Mary is thinking, well, they took his body so that, so that he couldn't return or that that the following, this, this mass of people that were following his disciples and the others who were believing him, that they would disperse because how can you honor, how can you follow the, 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 uh, the vision of somebody if you don't know even where their body is? I mean, we even to this day uh, go to grave sites. That's why we have grave sites in a certain sense to go to these places to pay homage and to pay honor and respect for these, these people, whether they're loved ones, whether it's, you know, your grandparents, your own parents, you know, maybe you've had a child that has died and you go to their gravesite and you, you know, the gravesite and you can, uh, you know, pay your respects and honor and remember them. Uh, but also popular figures, like have you ever been to, uh, um, uh, um, gosh, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, JFK's uh, burial site, his tomb, where the fi- the flame, the eternal flame, the first time that I was there, it was just it's very like awe-inspiring moment uh, to to know like that this guy who was gunned down for you know his uh, beliefs that would be so well we won't get into the politics right now, but anyways the um, the the there's this idea of the burial place, if the burial place is known, then the following can continue, which on another note that I won't get into is part of the reason I think that the burial place of Moses was blinded from the Israelites. So they didn't know where he was buried because God didn't want people following Moses. But anyways, so She's freaked out because they've taken the Lord away and they've put him somewhere else so that we can't pay respect. They are against us. They're trying to keep us from from honoring him, from following him, from continuing to carry on what he's done. So who knows all the various things that are running through her head. But there's one thing clear that's not going through her head, and that is Jesus has been raised. That's nowhere in her head. And that's okay. I'm not like trying to throw stones at her, but it's clear that she does not believe that he has been raised. So what happens? So Peter and the other disciple, they went forth and they were going to the tomb where they had laid the body. And the two were running together. And and this is, I think, a really cool sort of insight into the humanity of of John uh, as he is writing this letter. Because why would he include this other than a little bit of like one-upsmanship? and the other disciple, John, ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Why is that necessary? Like, I don't know. Other than he just wants everybody to know that he runs faster than Peter. Um, and so in stopping, stooping and looking in, John, he saw the linen wrappings laying there, but he did not go in. But Peter 
having also finally caught up is the idea, following him and entered into the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And then something peculiar is included and I have to be honest with you, I don't exactly know what it means, if it means anything. But I have to think it means something because why would this detail be included? And the face cloth, maybe you have a revelation of this that you can share with us. The face cloth, which had been on his head, they found it not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up or folded up in a place all by itself, separate. What does that mean? Uh, There's a lot of different ideas on that. One idea is that there was a reported Jewish cult custom that when the master was eating his dinner, if he was not finished with his plate, or if he was finished with his plate, he would take his napkin and he would just ball it up and put it on the the plate of food and the servant would know, okay, he's done. I can come get his plate and take it away. Whereas if the master folded his napkin and had to go attend to something and come back, he was returning He would fold his napkin and set it on the side, not on his food, but on the side. And that would be the cue to the servant, don't take the food away for the master is coming back. That's one idea that is presented that I came across. But other people say that's actually just make believe that wasn't an actual Jewish custom. So I don't know. I honestly don't know what, uh, what this may mean. If it may mean anything, the closest that I can think of is because uh, and by the way this is where the whole sh- shroud of Turin or whatever it's called is you know related to that people think might be the the actual thing that was on Jesus's face who knows it doesn't really matter I don't think but the w- the closest thing that I can feel comfortable with saying if this means anything would be that this when Jesus just told the disciples if you have seen me you have seen the Father. And so this thing that was over his face, the face that you look at, and by seeing him, you see the Father, that Jesus has taken it off and he's separated it from the rest of the common linens and he's folded it up and he's put it over here uniquely. Perhaps that is a way in which Jesus is reminding them that the face that was underneath here is the very face of God separate from the rest. And because now of my resurrection, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that when we look in a mirror now, when we truly look in a mirror and can peer through the veil of the flesh, what we would behold, if we could see as God sees, we would see the very glory of God in the mirror because it is now his life Fused, imparted into our life. And so maybe there's some connection to the face cloth. But I don't know. And I'm not going to, you know, say thus saith because I honestly don't know. But it was rolled up and it was put in a place all by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb, this is John, then also entered and he saw and he believed. By seeing, he believed. He believed what? It doesn't say that he believed necessarily. Well, did he believe what Mary was telling them? Did he believe that Jesus was truly raised from the dead? For, F-O-R, 
as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so they're convinced now that Jesus, at least John is, that Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, we still don't know where Jesus has gone and where Jesus is. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So she's returned back with them. She's weeping. And so as she wept, she then stooped because the disciples have left. She remains and she looks into the tomb perplexed and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head where Jesus was laid and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's not, on the, she's not in the same place where John, at least, is. Because John is at the place of, we've seen a resurrection. He's not here. He's not just been removed, but he's been raised from the dead. But Mary is not there yet. And so when she, verse 14... When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why she didn't know? Again, I don't know. Was her tears, you know, blurring her eyes? Was the the physical, like the last time she saw Jesus, he was a beaten pulp of flesh. And now she sees a resurrected body. Regardless, she doesn't know that it's Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener, she said to him, thinking it's the gardener of the, of the, of the garden that the tomb is found, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Like, I just want his body back. Jesus said to her, Mary. He calls her by name. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, verse 17, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. We're going to pause here, pick up on the story next week uh, in verse 19. But a couple of quick thoughts before we wrap up with the journey marker and the conclusion here. Who is it that the Lord chose to reveal himself first to a woman, a woman. Now, in our culture, that's not a big deal. Uh, but in the Jewish culture, did you know that women were not even permitted to testify in court? Their testimony was not considered valid. Why? I guess they were just male chauvinist pigs. I don't really know. There, a woman's testimony was not permitted in court. So why in the world would Jesus 
reveal himself to a woman whose testimony is not even a legally recognized testimony. Don't you find that odd? Wouldn't he reveal himself? Shouldn't he have, if he really wanted this thing to get out, shouldn't he have revealed himself perhaps maybe to the, I almost said prime minister, what is it, the chief priest? Shouldn't that be who he had revealed himself to, to make it more valid? Because who would believe a woman? Well, I think this is the, to me, the biggest, and there's other, but I think this is the biggest evidence for the resurrection, that these disciples were not just coming together, making up a story about Jesus being raised. If we were going to come together and make up a story in their culture about Jesus being raised, I bet you anything we would not craft the story where the first person that sees Jesus being raised is a woman who is not able to give testimony in court. You see this? We would pick somebody else at least one of the men disciples, but maybe even above that, maybe to Pilate, because Pilate's the one who actually sentenced him, but to the chief priest, to the Pharisees, somebody who would say, wow, we have seen the resurrected Lord. No, that's not who is recorded having first seen him. Paul says that there were over 500 eventually that saw him after his resurrection. But the very first person who comes running back into town announcing that she's seen the Lord is a woman who cannot give testimony in court. To me, that is evidence, I don't need any more, that this is not some sort of made-up fairy tale because you would not, you would not give the responsibility of carrying this message from, of the resurrected Lord to an individual whose testimony it would be like today and and this happens sometimes like a four-year-old who sees their mother murdered and they say can we trust the four-year-old's testimony in court you know there's a lot of of uh, court issues about this it's a very similar concept in their culture for just the testimony of a woman can we really trust the testimony of a woman why would jesus do that i think to prove that this was not fabricated, but the reality, and perhaps even pushing back on some of that patriarchal system to where I'm going to allow a woman to be the first to see me since my resurrection. And I don't think we should get all hung up sometimes. I used to get hung up on this part right here where he says, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Like, what's he talking about? Has he not seen the Father? Like, what's going on? Is he not with the Father? Is the Father not with him? What's going on here? I think just in general what he is saying is, listen, something better is going to come. Remember what he told the disciples? It is for your betterment that I leave so that I can then what? sin, the Holy Spirit, the restoration of life, so I can restore life to dead humanity. And so she's clinging to him like she wants his physical body. She's come there with the spices. She wants his body to be restored from whoever stole the body. She's all about the physical body. And he is saying, listen, there's something better because when I ascend, I will then send my spirit to then dwell within the life of humanity. For what purpose? To actually restore what was lost in the garden. So here's our our journey marker that I want us to see about resurrection in general, not just from this passage here in John chapter 20, but the gospel is not just the complete, total, and once and for all forgiveness of sins, but it's more. It's more. And thank God it's more. 
It is the restoration of God's very life into us. And so what that means is not only this moment, as hard as it is for you and me to wrap our minds around the fact that we're completely 100% once and for all forgiven of all sin for all time. Not, I mean, let's be honest, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we sin still daily. When we sin against each other, we hold that against each other. And so surely if, if I'm holding, you know, Bob's sins against him, then surely God's going to be holding my sins against me. I mean, that's just how it has to work because that's how I experience life here and now. And so it's hard enough for us to really come to terms with the first part of the gospel, complete and total forgiveness. And now you're saying, wait a minute, that's just preparation. That's just A, there's a B. That's just what you have to do in order to actually win the race. That's what, that's just the preparation for the presentation. Yes, that is what had to happen, the means for the end goal, for the very life of God himself to now be infused back into us. So what I'm saying to you this morning is not only the gospel, the complete and total, absolute, once and for all forgiveness of your sins for all time, but also the very fullness of God himself now lives in you. Never to leave you, never to forsake you. Why did the life of God leave Adam? Because what entered Adam? Starts with an S. Sin. And that sin was held against him. That's the means by which the life of God would leave you. So why did God completely, totally, and forever forgive you of all your sin? So that no sin ever could separate you, as Paul says in Romans, from his presence, from his love and life within you. So... If we're struggling, let's get this, if we're struggling to believe, A, that he has forgiven us truly of all of our sins, past, present, future, that there is no further forgiveness than what I already have. If we're struggling, and, and we, are, we do struggle to believe that, hopefully not so much in, in this fellowship, but in, in Christianity in general. I mean, this morning, not to get on this soapbox, but this morning, right now, getting the 11, 11.30 hour, there are churches around the globe where pastors are telling their congregants, whatever sins you've committed this week, you need to bring them before the mercy seat of God today so that you don't face them at the judgment seat tomorrow. So come down to this old-fashioned prayer rail, this altar and confess your sins to be purged and cleansed from your sins. And by Good grief, don't drink a little thimble of grape juice and a little wafer unless you've gotten all your sins taken care of. That's what's being preached around the globe. So we don't even believe, A, the complete and total forgiveness of sins. And I'm not only wanting us to believe the A, but there's a B. The fullness of God now lives in you, with you, never to leave you because he's already done A. If A is not complete, then B is only as last, will only last until you sin again. Because the wages of sin is death, the removal of his life. And so if he's still counting sins, then his life isn't going to be in you. See, I was in this crazy mixture of he's still holding my sins against me, but he's never going to leave me. That just 
that's two plus two is seven. That just doesn't add up. If he's holding sins against me, then his life cannot be in me. Genesis proved that. The day in which you disobey, the day in which sin enters, you will die. My life is gone. So I'm encouraging us to just believe the gospel and that it's not just something that we already don't believe, which is the complete total once and for all forgiveness of sins, but I'm encouraging us to believe something even bigger than that. More than that, Paul says, the restoration of the very life of God into you. So I'm going to close with a couple of things. If you like to write notes, this is cool. If you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, no, I didn't put this in the notes on the, in your phone. So how can we tell if a believer, including us, is struggling with believing the gospel? How can we tell if we or someone we know and love is struggling to believe the gospel as the scriptures reveal the gospel? And there's only one gospel. I've got five things very quickly. How can we tell if a believer, including us, is struggling with believing the gospel? Number one, they believe, or maybe we, that God is still holding my sins against me. If we in any sort of way are believing that God is still holding our sins against us in any sort of way, then we are, in essence, struggling to believe the gospel. Because the gospel is the complete and total forgiveness of all sin for all men for all time. Number two, how can we tell if a believer, including us, is struggling with really believing the gospel as proclaimed in the scriptures? Number two, we believe that God will forgive sins as we ask him to forgive us of sins. If we believe that as we ask for forgiveness, he dishes out forgiveness, then we're struggling with believing the gospel as God revealed it through the scriptures. Because asking for forgiveness has never been a means for forgiveness. Hebrews says very plainly, chapter 9, look it up, without the shedding of what? There is no forgiveness of sins. Anybody know? Blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I know I've said this before, this, this little illustration before, but, but for those who, who weren't with us when I shared this last when you come to America, we use the things called dollars, okay? If you go into the 7-Eleven and you come with your Russian ruble, right? And you try to buy that, you know, what's it saying? Slurpee? What is it? The Big Gulp? You try to buy your Big Gulp at 7-Eleven with a Russian ruble, the lady behind the desk, the man behind the desk is going to look at you kind of strange. She's going to say, he's going to say, we don't what? We don't take that. That's no good here. We don't take that. Our currency is the dollar. We don't take that. What is God's currency for forgiveness of sins? Blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no transaction. There is no forgiveness of sins. So what we've done is we've come to the 7-Eleven counter with asking for forgiveness from God, thinking that that's, going to, that's the currency that he's going to allow us to exchange for forgiveness. And when we ask, God, I did this, please forgive me for that. God, please forgive me for that. I did this again, please forgive me. We think that that's the currency that's exchanged in order to receive forgiveness. And I believe God looks at us lovingly, because he loves us. But like the person behind the 7-Eleven counter, like, we don't take Russian rubles. That's not our currency. My currency, God says, is the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so when did, how many times was blood shed for the forgiveness of sins? We got one of these. 
one finger, we can hold up and say like Hebrew says, once and for all. So if we think God forgives us of our sins as we ask him to forgive us on an ongoing basis, here's the reality of that. We're struggling to believe the gospel. And that's okay because we struggle in a lot of ways. But let's just call it what it is. We're struggling to believe the truth of the gospel. Number three, how can we tell if a believer, including us, is struggling to believe the gospel? Number three, when I sin, God distances himself from me. When I sin, and we do, let me raise your hand if you don't sin. Okay, good. If, if we, when we sin, when we choose foolishness, God is going to distance, God distances himself from me. And I don't like that. I don't like that feeling. And so what do I need to do to get him a little bit closer? We go up to number two. We are told to ask for forgiveness for that sin so that he gets back a little bit closer. And so there's this uh, uh, yo-yo back and forth, back and forth of God's presence and his power, his life in us. Well, what did John say? John 5, we, 1 John 5, we just read it. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's binary. It's a zero or a one. Is that binary? Whatever. It's digital. It's a zero or a one. Either you have the life or you don't have the life. Nothing in between. Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. Binary? Okay. Uh, stay, in your, stay in your lane, Walt. Um, I'm going to talk about the computer stuff. Uh, number four. How can we tell if a believer, including ourselves, is struggling with believing the true gospel? We think, when I ask for forgiveness, God then gets closer, which I just basically said. So I sin, he, he swivels away, he turns his back, he, he distances himself, or some would say a little more self-righteously, well, God doesn't turn away from me. I, turn, I walk away from him. Um, regardless, this idea of distance and then closeness, distance and then closeness based on our asking, based on our confessions of sins. Um, yeah, all right, number five, the last one. Well, no. The wages of sin is what? Death. What is this person believing? The wages of sin is what? Distance. Which is true. I'm going to go with the scriptures. You can pick what you want to go with, but I'm going to go with the scriptures. The wages of sin is not distance. The wages of sin is death. And so if God is distancing himself from me because of sin, then he is doing something contrary to the scriptures. Because it's not distance that happens as a result of sin. It's death that happens if he's going to hold sins. The, the, the wages of sin is not tension in a relationship with God. The wages of sin is termination. So we've, we've really watered sin down to suggest that it's not death that he gives us. It's just distance. It's not termi uh, termination. It's tension in a relationship. But the, people say that like, when they sin, God is disappointed in them. God's relationship to us with our relationships with each other. There we go. Number five. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, tra um, uh, segue. <laughs> Number five. My 
How can we tell if a believer, including us, is struggling to believe the gospel? My relationship with God is set. I'm, I'm his son. I'm his daughter. But my fellowship with him, my intimacy, my, my closeness, it waxes and wanes. It gets bigger, it gets smaller. It waxes and wanes. Now, I will be the first to tell you that there is definitely a feeling of disappointment, a feeling of dissatisfaction that God dissatisfied. There are feelings galore. I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about the truth. If feelings become truth, our definition of truth, then whoa. We have to go with what the truth is. Not only do I have a relationship with God that is set, I'm his son forever. But Paul says in this letter to the Corinthians, that we have been called into fellowship with his son. So it's not only just a relationship that he has called us into, but it's an intimate fellowship that we are now in with him. And what power do you have to change that? Which is greater, his call of you into fellowship with him or sin? We sang a song that said our sin was great, but his grace is greater. We sang that. We all the words came out of our mouth, but do we believe it? And so I wanted to put this list together as we are talking about the resurrection, because these things are, are th- these thoughts, and there's more, but we just, I just stopped at five. The, these things, if, if this is our mentality, if this is our, if this is our theology, then this is going to directly affect how we experience the resurrected life of Christ within us. Because how in the world can we live from the life of God that has now been infused into our spirit, as Paul says, joined as one, he who, he who joins himself to the Lord has become one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6, we are now one with him. How can we ever live that out? How can we ever experience the fruit of that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc.? How can we ever, if we're over here still thinking he's holding my sins, still thinking that my confession and, and asking is what clears the slate with him, when thinking that God walks away from me or I walk away from him when we do sin, and then just by asking it gets it back together again, so forth and so on. We'll never... This is what I'm trying to get at. We'll never mature. Maturity is putting these things to bed and believing the truth of the gospel that God will never hold my sins against me because he's held them all against his son. That forgiveness comes by blood, not by asking, so forth and so on. Putting that to bed so that we can now walk in the deeper reality of the life of God Jesus himself, his spirit, the fullness now dwells in me. So the writings of Paul to the Colossians that says that the fullness of the Godhead bodily living in Christ and this very Christ now, the full riches of this glory is that he now lives in you. It's not just fanciful, colorful letters that Paul put on a piece of paper, but it's now life to me because I've put to bed the foolishness of religious religion based thinking of 
sin still being held against me, etc. And I'm not able to step into the glorious light of the God of the universe, pleased because he has taken away my sin. And the only thing that pleases him, again, Hebrews 11, is faith, trusting him. So I think we should. I think we should trust him. What's the remedy? The remedy is believing the truth that all your sins have been removed. That's what we looked at last week. It is finished. The old you has died with Christ and by faith, a new creation has been raised up with him. A whole new man born new from above, not of this world, set apart like the folded face towel to where we can now look in the mirror and we behold the glory of God now in us as in a mirror looking at the face. As he is, John says, so are we now in this world. That's hard to believe, but that's the gospel. And I say, let's stop fooling around and let's believe the truth and be set free from this sort of thinking and experience the life of God within. Any thoughts or questions or but what abouts or shoulda, coulda, woulda? Yeah. I like your um, use of currency. Uh-huh. Because um, to me, the gospel is a contract. It's the execution of a contract. Mm-hmm. And um, that doesn't involve feelings or emotions. It's, a, it's like a business country. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, when, when we go buy something at the store, we give currency, like you said. Mm-hmm. We get something in exchange mm-hmm. for that currency. Once that transaction has happened, whatever that was that we received is ours. Yeah. We own it. Yeah. And... Um, my thoughts or feelings about it doesn't matter. It's it's mine. It's purchased. Mm-hmm. And to me, I mean, that's that's the gospel is a contract that got only God had the currency. He's yeah. the only one who had the currency, right. the blood yeah. of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so he, there was an exchange. Right. Yeah. Words. Words like reconciliation, propitiation. I mean, these are accounting terms, like legal accounting terms that are used to help explain the writers of the gospel of the the New Testament used to explain this thing that you're talking about. Not that emotions aren't involved and that feelings aren't involved, you know, involved, but regardless of the feelings, regardless of how I feel about myself or about whatever, that doesn't, that doesn't change the truth, I think is what you're getting at. And so whether we feel loved doesn't change whether we are loved. It's not dependent on us in any way, mm-hmm. our salvation and our new life. It's, it's completely done by him, and it goes on by him. Yeah. Regardless of the devil, the, you know, Satan, yeah. the, the evil one, who would try to throw those at Yeah, us. right. Well, I, I feel that feeling now, and I, and I, you know, I know where that's from, but because of this transaction that happened, right. that has no bearing yeah. on me. Yeah, that's right, All right. Because there's another interesting aspect of the 
monetary mm -hmm. example wherein I don't know if anyone ever has family members and you try to pay them for something and say your money's no good here because mm -hmm. it's already paid for. Mm -hmm. It's already mm -hmm. been paid for by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. At said 7-Eleven. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. cashier would say your money's right. no good here. It's already been. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Like if, if or, or like taking that in that same thought, like if you're paid for somebody else's dinner or somebody else has paid for you, but you didn't know, and then you went to pay for your dinner, and they're like, it's already paid, you know, sort of a deal. That's like asking God to, for, now, does that mean we can't talk to God about struggles? Of course that, I'm not saying that. Uh, do, do, so, are, Walt, are you saying we, just, we don't talk to God at all about our sin life and our sin struggles? I, I didn't hear me say that. That's certainly not what I'm talking about. But to equate now that I talk to God about sins, I'm now forgiven of said sins. That's where I draw the line because that's just, again, I know it's taught. I believed it. I taught it for years. But when the scriptures teach something completely different, I'm just dumb enough to go with what the scriptures say. You, you were going to say something? Well, I was just going to say. That I'm dumb enough? So on, no. <laughs> on the same topic, you know, I think that, that all of us have moments when we feel, number mm -hmm. five, that mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. relationship mm -hmm. with God isn't as close because of my struggle with, yeah. you know, anger toward my spouse or whatever. Yeah. But there's healing in... That seems an oddly specific. Yeah, that was incredibly specific. It's totally unwarranted. But there is healing when you get to the point where you can say, okay, my relationship with Christ is not distanced by that. How thankful I am that that's true, yeah. that I know that to be true, and get... Through that frustration yeah. and that sin to the right. other side, yeah. there's this I think about like, healing and, and even more closeness yeah, right. that comes of that because or a revelation of a greater revelation of the closeness that already is. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. because like think about it. in that moment, when do you need to know how close he is? What what, what when else? I say this in that moment when you're struggling with whatever said sin is. When does his closeness and nearness need to be? made more known to you than that moment right there. Right then. That's when it needs to be made revealed. I, I, I've said this before and I stand by it, that if we're caught in a sin, uh, whatever it is, that's the moment when we need to get out the thimble of, of grape juice and the wafer and remember, whether it's figurative or literal, and remember what he did. Remember that he's taken this way. Peter says in First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, that we sin because we have forgotten that we have been purified from all of our sins. We sin because we forget that we are clean of, of all of our sins. And so, therefore, if we're caught in a sin, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. That's when we need a fresh remembrance or a revelation or whatever of what he's done already to us. Um, because then that... that awakens our spirit that that's the war that the spirit and the flesh are fighting but we are not in the flesh we can walk after the flesh we can obey the flesh we can do whatever in that regard but we're never in the flesh again we are always in the spirit because we've been taken by the glorious grace crane out of the kingdom of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins colossians 1 and, uh, but to get that reality, the 18 inches up to our unredeemed minds that are still struggling with one through five, 
It's a lifetime. I'm on the 80-year plan myself. And so let us not be impatient with ourselves or with others who are struggling, but let's not back away from the truth. And then my hope is that that time that it takes for that connection to be made gets shorter and shorter. Yeah, that's right. Aaron Budgen talks about that in one of his podcasts, about 10 years from now, instead of right now the guilt and the shame that comes in that's there for two days, maybe in 10 years from now, it's, it's 20 seconds. You know, it's not that we, 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 we are um, ob- oblivious to, you know, sin, but it's the disconnection of now God must see me as, you know, something other than what I truly am. And so uh, it is a, but that's a mark of maturity, I think. You have a question? I thought? I, I kind of have a two-part question. I was thinking about First John 1, 9, mm-hmm. when it talks about um, when, when we confess our sins, mm-hmm. faithful and just to forgive. Maybe he, he wrote that, or I want to hear what you have to mm-hmm. say, but as like a one-time deal, like mm-hmm. for we're a Christian, we need mm-hmm. to confess, and then he'll forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. But I also wanted to talk about like, how should we teach our children about the gravity of sin mm-hmm. while still maintaining that, you know, we are forgiven once and for all and that um, we're not, you know, distanced from God. Yeah. Because, you know, that was one of the huge verses when I was a kid, like, make sure you confess your sins because yeah. then God will, and then... I think everyone in the room would say that same thing. Yeah. Every one of us, uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think I've, I can, I think I can, that First John 1, 9 was the stumbling block, you know, to really understanding the truth. Um, because it was presented, again, I believed it, I taught it, that it was the bar of soap for the Christian, for the believer, to help clean, clean, our, clean, clean ourselves up. And I haven't done a message specifically on 1 John 1, 9 in a while. Maybe when we finish John, I'll just take a whole Sunday and we'll talk about it. But I'll give you the cliff notes. Read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through the whole chapter, which is the very next verse, verse 10. Read the whole thing. And if if any one of us who might still be confused about 1 John 1, 9 still remains totally confused about after reading the whole, that whole chapter, then, then call me and we'll, we'll walk through it slowly. But I think that most, I should say most of it, like I think all of us by the Spirit of God in us, when we read in context of what John is saying, it really just clarifies it so clearly. Uh, you especially then when you keep on reading and don't stop at verse 10, go into chapter two, read down verse one through 12. Chapter two, verse 12 says, my children, I write to you because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. So either John is the most like schizophrenic you know, individual in the world because in first John 1, 9, he says, get your sins forgiven as you ask on a continual daily basis. And then two twelve, he says, your sins have been forgiven. It's in the Greek, it's perfect tense, meaning it happened at a specific point in time, i.e. the cross, and the repercussions continue to this very day. It's the perfect tense. Those two things cannot be true, that we ask for forgiveness continuously and we're forgiven once and for all. Those are contrary, kind of like your question last week about the Lord's Prayer. So what is going on in one nine? I say, read the whole chapter in its context, the whole book if you want, but at least the chapter in its context. And it's clear to me that John, because he says it plainly, we are writing to you in chapter one because your fellowship is not with us and our fellowship is with the Father. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess, 
we agree, because he's writing to people who think that uh, they did not have sins to be forgiven. If we simply homilageo, confess, if we simply say the same thing as, if we agree with God that we have sin, he is faithful and just. And to cleanse and to forgive is actually aorist tense, which aorist in Greek is past tense. So Aaron Budgen interprets it as having forget. He is faithful and just, having forgiven us, having cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Not to get all nerdy, but it's an aorist infinitive, and so it's a little bit different than a regular indicative verb. But so it could be translated as it is commonly, but it certainly doesn't have to be because it's it's aorist tense. And so if you read, read it the way again Aaron Budgen translates it and many others. If, guys, listen, if we, whoever we are, just simply confess that we have failed, that we've missed the mark, he's faithful, he's just, having, here's the, here's the evidence of his faithfulness and justness, he's forgiven us of all of our sins, and uh, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how many times can you be cleansed from all your unrighteousness? So, uh, I think in context, it's crystal clear. But nobody, myself included, for 31 years of my life was willing to read the context. I just took what the guy up there standing behind the pulpit with the tie on said, and that must be the truth. And I was a parrot. I was a, not a puppet, a parrot. I, whatever he said, I said. And I just think that that's all too common. And it's just uh, unfortunate. Which, why I say don't take my word for it. You, you have the Spirit of God in you. You search these things out. You see what the truth is. If, if we just end up taking some other guy's word for it, then we're just doing the same thing that I did all those years. It's just not the point either. Don't cling even, don't, don't cling to each other in that sense of, oh, you've got to tell me what the truth is. The Holy Spirit lives in you. As Jesus said, don't cling to me. There's something better coming. Life is coming into you to guide you in all truth, to reveal to you what is mine, because what is mine is now yours. It's better than we could ever imagine, ever imagine. So, but maybe I'll do, I'll do that after we finish, John. I'll just go through 1 John 1 and maybe 2. I mean, maybe the whole book, I don't know. But we'll, because I'd love to walk it through contextually because it's just so clear that it's not continually, okay, what's today? Today's Monday. Let's confess our sins so he'll forgive us. Okay, what's today? Tuesday. Let's confess our sins so he'll forgive That thought is nowhere in the mind of John as he writes that, in my opinion. I could be wrong, so don't take my word for it. Great question. Anything else? Yeah. I had, I had two thoughts. One was, you know, it was prophesied that the new covenant would be nothing like the old. Mm-hmm. And like, with his last like breath the temple curtain is torn in two and then with like his first breath he comes in and makes himself known to a woman where like okay this whole Jewish law thing and tradition like we're going to turn that on its head like, yeah the last thing I'm going to do and the first thing I'm going to do yeah is like yeah nothing like the old yeah that's um, great yeah but then I have always been curious and I don't know if there's an answer like those three days he's in the tomb He's given up his spirit, his, like, the soul, whatever you want mm-hmm. to say. Like, where where was Jesus, the part of the Godhead, during that 
time? Because I've heard it said he descended into hell, and I'm like, I don't know that I've ever read that anywhere, like scripturally, or like where. Yeah. Um, when he gives up his spirit, where does that go? Right. Is it important? Yeah. Um, is it important? That, uh, um, I would not say no, uh, but there's the the trees for the forest, you know, sort of a thing. Um, but uh, re- check out um, Ephesians chapter 4, because Ephesians 4 is where Paul says that he descended into Sheol to lead captive those who were in its grip. So you get this, I, giving them gifts. So you get this picture of a king who goes into so, uh, another kingdom who had already captured people from his kingdom, he goes into that foreign kingdom, defeats the king of the other kingdom, and leads his people free from that kingdom, giving them gifts of freedom, etc., so forth. And so you get this imagery of Jesus going into, whether it be Abraham's bosom, Sheol, I mean, again, I, I don't know uh, how that looked and worked exactly, but in his resurrection, he defeats the other kingdom, death, sin and death, and leads free those Old Testament saints, the those who believed in the promises from the Old Testament, to be the first to enter into the heavens. Because I think it's Hebrews that says that Jesus was the first to enter into heaven. So David, Abraham, etc. They when they died, they were not in quote heaven, the kingdom of heaven. They were in what the scripture calls Abraham's bosom, paradise. Jesus says, "Surely this day I'll see you in paradise." That's not heaven. That's this. Uh, I understand it to be a, a Abraham's bosom where it's uh, where they awaited. They were still unregenerate. They were still dead in their sins. Sin hadn't been removed. Uh, there was no sacrifice yet. And so there was a waiting. But now that waiting has ended and he leads them into the kingdom. So that Hebrews, uh, uh, what I say, Ephesians 4 gets into that. But, but it doesn't specify, it just hints at it. I don't know anywhere that like says this is what Jesus did at eleven thirty-two on you know Friday and then on you know he just, he died and rose from the dead. So that's what I mean by the trees and the forest. Like does it matter? Sure, it matters, but like it doesn't change what we know to be true. And that's a great non-answer, I think. <laughs> cool, awesome, great discussion. Hope you're encouraged. Yeah, well, let's go here first. Yeah, great word. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man, look at that. Before the cross, even. God's looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's great. That's a great. Because we have the knowledge of good and evil. This, this thing that we think morality is a great thing. It was morality, the knowledge of good and evil, that resulted in their death. It's, Christianity is not... Let's be moral people. That's not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is we are dead in our sins. Our sins have been removed, and we have now been infused with our journey marker with the life, um, here it is, wherever it is. But it's the restoration of life. Now, as Jesus lives through us, because we're, we've, we're settled with the cross thing, it actually worked. Now there's a resurrection thing happening, now, is he going to lead us 
in sinful thoughts and sinful ways? Is, is the Spirit of God in us going to manifest greed, jealousy, you know, et cetera, and so forth? Of course not. But it's not, but righteous living doesn't come just from a knowledge of right and wrong. It comes from a dependency upon Christ now in us. And we'll never get to that. We'll never get, that's the fruit of the Spirit. We'll never get to that if we're still wrestling over here with, well, he's still holding my sins. I'm dirty. I'm distant. I'm, I'm still in the family, but I'm like the redheaded stepchild today until I do something and then I become, you know, better and, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's just it's religious foolishness that I've bought into most of my life. And I'm glad I look forward to the day when I say that most of my life I've not. I'll have to be like in my... 60s, the 60s by then, but still, I look forward to that day because it was a waste of time. Maybe some people, maybe God used it, but anyways, go ahead. Father, um, Jesus came into the world humbly as a baby. Um, no place for him. And as he grew, you know, what well, he couldn't be because nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nazareth. Yeah. So, comes into the world totally humble, mm-hmm. you know, the lowest and then reveals himself first, like you said, to Mary, um, who was in that culture deemed to be one of the lowest. Yeah, right. And she had washed his feet with her tears. I think so, yeah. Um, and he's, he's revealing himself in his... I mean, he, he was a victorious king. Mm-hmm. Point, you know, mm-hmm. going to one of the lowest in the culture. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and he and he went looking for her, like you were saying, with with Adam and Eve. Yeah, he went looking for her. Awesome, good stuff. Uh, well, let's stand and we close with a word of prayer. I hope you've been encouraged, not by simply a speech, but by the Spirit of God in you. Um, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we can look at the resurrection, and, and, and we do, every day of our life, for the rest of our lives, and we'll never fully um, comprehend the greatness of it. And that's a good thing. But let us be settled in what had to happen in order for the resurrected life to be given to us. Because if we don't get the cross settled, we'll never live in the resurrected life. So, Father, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.